All right, well, as you may remember from last week, we, we started a mini-series in between our book series. Normally, we preach through a book of the Bible, and we just start at the beginning and go through to the end. Uh, we just finished that, obviously, with Ephesians, and now um, the next book we're going to go through is the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we're not going to start that for a couple more weeks. And so in between, we planned this series called Relaunch, you know, relaunching our church back into Parramatta, back into normal life, back post-COVID, and then everything went back into restrictions and lockdown. But nonetheless, um, we still actually need this mission series. Um, I need it. I don't know about you, um, but it's so easy to lose track of the mission that we've been given as Christians. Uh, The mission, like we saw last week, to seek the lost and actually reach out with the gospel to lost souls who need saving. Um, In our kind of ISO world and in our little kind of bubbles, it's so easy to actually miss all those connections. For a lot of us, we're still working at home. We're not catching the bus and the train. We're not out and about as much. We're not even seeing neighbors as much anymore. It's raining. And so it's so easy to lose sight of the mission. Um, Our mission statement as a church is we're a church passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we're going to take this little series to just breathe a bit of life back into that and put it back on the table so that we're thinking about it again. And and hopefully, by God's grace, it'll lead to us loving people and seeking after people. Um, And so today we're going to read from Romans chapter 1. And the, the title of this message is The Power of the Gospel. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Just two verses for this morning. This afternoon, actually, I should say. Richard was saying this morning. Yeah. It's all right. It's morning somewhere. Okay. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first... And also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. You may remember a movie uh, that came out quite a while ago. I don't even remember the release date of the movie, but it's called 50 First Dates. Um, It's an Adam Sandler movie, so it's not appropriate. I do not recommend it. But I remember the general plot line, and it's a really interesting plot line um, because it, it is a romance movie with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore where they get together and they fall in love, but with a twist. You see, Adam Sandler, who's called Henry Roth, and Drew Barrymore, who's called Lucy Whitmore, um, they meet each other, he, he's a vet, and she, I can't remember what she does, but anyway, they meet each other and just instantly sort of have this connection and, and this vibe, and they're falling in love already in that first date, and they do whatever, you know, it happens in the romantic comedies, they go for a sleepover to each other's house, just, you know, just a sleepover, I'm sure, and then the next morning, Adam Sandler wakes up, and Lucy, uh, Drew Barrymore wake up, and they look at each other, and she just starts screaming her head off. She's yelling and screaming, and so he starts yelling and screaming, because he's just like, oh, is this what I'm meant to do? And she starts hitting him and yelling at him, and she's like, what are you doing in my bed? Why are you here? And he's like, well, we spent the whole day together yesterday, etc." And then eventually you find out throughout the movie that um, the reason why she's screaming and yelling is that she's been in a horrific car accident 
And in the car accident, she's lost all of her short-term memory. And so every day she wakes up and she's forgotten what's happened the day before. She remembers long-term things like who her parents are, where she lives, vague memories and things like that. But she can't remember what's happened the day before. But Adam Sandler has fallen totally in love with this girl. And so his mission every day is to construct ways to make her fall back in love with him. And so that's why the movie's called 50 First Dates, because every time they meet, he has to pretend it's like the first time they've met, and he has to win her heart again. Eventually, over the course of the film, they fall in love, and they even get married, and they have a child. And the final scene in the movie is her waking up on a boat, actually, and it's kind of rocking, and you're like, oh, what's going on? And, and she's like, whoa, where am I? Because she hasn't been cured of her amnesia, right? She's still got the short-term memory. But what he's done, because he's so desperate for her to understand what's going on and not to freak out, he's made a little VCR. That's how old this film is. There's a VCR there, and it says, watch this, Lucy. And so she gets it, and she puts it in the tape player. Is that what they were called? VHS or something like that? Anyway, I can't even remember. Puts it in the, the VHS thing and presses play. And what he's done, he's organized for the whole, mo- uh, the whole little movie to tell the story of her life. And so every morning she wakes up and she finds out that she was born at this time and that she's had a horrific car accident and then that they've fallen in love and that they've gotten married and that they have a child. And so you watch her watching her life and she's like, oh my goodness, she's crying. And then finally it says, hey, and it's a video of him on the boat saying, hey, put a jacket on, it's really cold outside. So she puts a jacket on and walks outside and There he is, her husband that she's just meeting for the first time and her child that she's just meeting for the first time. Now, it's a pretty interesting little storyline there, but what I think it does is it actually reflects a reality that we live in almost every day as Christians. You see, every day we almost wake up with this amnesia, this gospel amnesia that the most incredible things have happened to us. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ... We've already seen it today. You are unified with the God of heaven. All your sins are forgiven. All these amazing blessings have been conferred upon you. But often we wake up just like Lucy Whitmore with amnesia. We don't even know what's going on. And so when we get this task of you know, living for Christ, and then even more when you get this mission like we've been talking about, to go out and make disciples, if we have gospel amnesia, we're going to be clueless and hopeless in our task. We're not going to remember the incredible things that have happened, the incredible message that we have to tell. And so just like Lucy Whitmore, every day we need to put the tape back in and play the story again. We need to remind ourselves the message of the gospel, the knowledge of the message and the power of the gospel. We need to replay the tape so that we can experience and truly know again what has happened to us. And so today, the heart and the the desire for this message is that through replaying the tape of the gospel, God would get our hearts again, and that we would relive the story all over again, and that we would truly know the power of this gospel message so that we can join in as disciples of Christ and seek the lost, to connect with the lost, to care for the lost, to communicate the gospel to the lost, and to call the lost home with God. And so Paul says, and I'll read the passage again, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
But as we go out, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but this is my experience. Sometimes you go out and you're like, yes, the gospel, it's so true, it's amazing, I've played the tape, I've got it. And then you start meeting with people and talking with them, and it just feels like there's no power in it at all, right? You're talking, you're trying to talk about faith, but they're not really interested, or you know, they're pretty happy, they're content, their life's going well. Or you start trying to bring up religion, they're like, oh, I've already got a religion, I'm fine, thank you. Or perhaps they're hostile and they're actually just like, no, do not talk to me about that. And it, it becomes really difficult for us to know how do we actually bring the message of the gospel in when it doesn't feel like it has any power. We can feel like we're, you know, like an advertisement. You know those junk mail advertisements you get selling things that you're like, why did anyone make this? And you're like, buy this solar-powered toothbrush. Who wants a solar-powered toothbrush? That's how it can feel. The gospel message can feel to us when we lose sight of its power and just the whole story. So how did Paul become someone who was passionate and unashamed? He wasn't like, oh, I've got a solar-powered toothbrush. Do you want it? Oh, run away. He's like, I have the most incredible news in all the world. How do we get to that place? We've got to play the tape again. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to play the tape so that we would know the power of the gospel. Three points today. I won't read them out now, but we'll go through them. They're pretty simple. With the basic question, how did Paul get to a position where he was unashamed and totally convinced of the power of the gospel? Let's go point number one. Why we need saving. So how did Paul get to a point where he was like, i got to tell everyone this message? Well... It's because Paul knew just how much everyone needed the message. You see, Paul was totally aware of the need that people have for the message of the gospel. He didn't feel like he had a solar-powered toothbrush. He felt like he had the best news in all the world. He knew people needed saving. And so for the next three chapters in the book of Romans, he actually goes through and outlines all the reasons why you and I need saving. Why anyone here who's not yet a believer in Christ needs saving. But before we get there, even without the Bible, we can see just in our own lives this need for saving. Who here doesn't have relational dysfunction somewhere in their family? Who here doesn't have broken down you know, relationships in your past? Or who here doesn't have mental health problems, you know, sin problems, financial problems, physical health problems? There's all these problems that we encounter in life where we actually need help. We need saving. We need someone to come in and rescue us if we're honest. But Paul goes to the deepest problem, not just the surface level, however significant and painful they may be. Paul goes to the deeper problem of why people need saving. And this is why he's so passionate about the gospel, because he sees people's desperate need. You see, the first thing he outlines in chapter 1 is that we have rejected God and he is angry with us. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is why people need the message of the gospel. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The fundamental problem of humanity is that we have a relational breakdown with the God of the universe. That although everyone is born with a sense and the knowledge of God from his creation, just look out that window and it speaks. It tells you God rules and God reigns, that there's a creator and a designer. Yet every single one of us, whether we call Christ our Lord and Savior or don't yet call him our Lord and Savior, at some point in our life we have rejected that knowledge. We've suppressed that truth and we've shut ourselves off from the God of the universe. We've disrespected him, disregarded him, treated him lightly, treated him like he doesn't really matter. And if we're honest, even as followers of Christ, we still do that every day. We know God exists. Everyone in the world does. That's what the Bible says. But we cover it up in our hearts. And so as a result, God has righteous anger towards those people who reject him. It's funny how even in our kind of post-religious, you know, some people who are post-religious in our city, they still end up putting their faith in something. They cover up the truth about God, but they still need some ordering power to govern the world. So they trust in government, or they trust in the material sciences or something like that. I was at soccer just yesterday morning, and um, it was looking like it was about to rain, and someone came over, one of the guys, and said, oh, who ordered this weather? Who made this happen? I said, oh, I think that'd be God. He said, oh, you know, well, what about science? And I was like, well, I don't think science can make anything happen. But it was just interesting that his instinct was, no, there mustn't be a God. Science made this happen. Obviously, science is just a theory of knowledge, a way of looking at things. It can't make anything happen. But in suppression of the knowledge and the reality that God exists, we elevate all these other things. That's offensive to God. God hates that. And so that's why in verse 18 it says, the wrath of God is revealed against our unrighteousness. But he goes on in chapter 2 and he says, well, even though you've suppressed God and you live in all manner of, of wicked ways, even if you don't know about God through the Bible, you actually sin against him in your own heart, in your own conscience. Look at chapter 2. It says, For all have sinned. For all who have sinned without the law, this is verse 12 to 16, I should say, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, that's people who aren't Jewish, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is that in chapter 1, all people know God exists and we suppress it and we make other gods and we worship them. 
In chapter 2, he's saying, even in our own hearts and minds, we know the law of God. We're born with an innate moral sense of God's standards. Do not lie. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. All cultures around the world have a, a basic moral code which aligns with God's moral code. And so when people who don't even know what the Bible has to say abide by God's law, they are showing that in their hearts they know God's law, and when they break it, they're breaking God's law, and they're guilty of God's law, even though they've never heard it. And so even people who are all over the world have never heard of God or Christianity are still in desperate need of salvation. They've suppressed the truth of the Creator. They've suppressed the truth of the moral law. And they stand guilty before God because they can't even keep to their own conscience. Their conscience tells them not to lie, but they do it anyway. Their conscience tells them not to steal, but they do it anyway. Their conscience tells them not to commit adultery, but they do it anyway, and are therefore guilty before God. So Paul's laying out his argument as to why we need the gospel, and he finishes in chapter 3 with this in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul puts it all together. And the summation is this. We have a big problem as humans. God is righteous and holy and worthy of all of our love, attention and energy. And we have suppressed the truth of him. We have revolted against him and we are hostile towards him. He is holy and we are not. And this problem is not a problem that can be fixed by us. It's a problem, it's a deep problem that every human bears. And it's a problem that each one of us has to come to terms with to be a follower of Jesus. Each one of you, if you have taken Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've had to admit that these aren't just verses about someone else. These are verses about you. This is you. No one is righteous. No, not one. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I hate admitting I'm wrong. I hate admitting my faults. Maddie will attest to this. I like to blame shift and blame it on Judah stealing my wallet like last week or whatever. It's always someone else's fault. But friends, we must take full accountability for our actions before God if we're ever to understand the power of the gospel. We need to know that we were ones that needed saving. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to own it that you are not right before a holy God. In business in Australia, that if you account accrue too many debts and you, you can't pay them back, you've got all these creditors coming to you saying, give me my money back, your only option if you've got no money or no way of getting any credit to pay them back is to declare 
bankruptcy. It's to say, I have nothing. <laughs> I'm spent. Everything I have is gone. I can't give it back to you. I'm sorry. And that's what humans have to do before a holy God. We have to declare moral and spiritual bankruptcy. You and I have declared this if we're followers. But every one of our friends and family and neighbors who do not yet know Christ are also morally bankrupt. They're spiritually bankrupt before God. There's nothing they can offer to him that he will be pleased with. We need to see and realize that we're not just imperfect, but rotten to the core. And that we're hopeless and helpless and irreparable. And once you despair of yourself, once you despair of your condition and the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, you are ready to trust in Christ. You are ready to make a movement toward him. But only once you understand why you need to be saved. And only once we understand that our friends and families are in this position will we sense the need to share the gospel with them. So, in order to be on mission as a church, we need to know the power of the gospel to save lives. And we need to know, the first step is, we need to know that lives need saving. And I know we know it in our heads, but we need to know it and feel it in our hearts. We need to feel their separation from God. We need to feel their, the righteous wrath of God that will come against them one day. And the logical question to ask in light of this reality, and it feels like, yeah, we know this, okay. But the logical question to ask is then, how can I be saved? If the gospel is the power of salvation, how do I get this salvation? And that's point number two. How we can be saved. Point number two, how we can be saved. You see, Paul was passionate not about going around telling everyone how much they sucked. He wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to get to Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel because I want to tell them how bad they are. Paul was passionate about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ because it's a solution to the problem. So how can people be saved? Read Romans 1.16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That means the good news of Jesus. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. What saves us? What can save the human race? You know, confronted with our problems before a holy God, we often look to a multitude of different ways to save ourselves. We as humans, even as Christians, are so quick to try and fix it rather than admit our need, that we often try and save ourselves. People do this by trusting in false religions and religions that you know, help you to think, well, if I just do enough things and get all the things right and pay enough money to this God and sacrifice to this God, then God will accept me. In the West, we have our own version of that as being a good enough kind of person, where if you just kind of do a little bit enough charity and a little bit enough niceness and you're generally good neighbor and you're generally good enough, you will have appeased a holy God and he will let you into heaven. 
We trust in governments to save us rather than God. We trust in our family heritage. All my parents are Christians, so I must be included in. Even at times, we can fall into the trap of trusting our feelings. Well, I feel like God loves me, so I must be saved. Or trusting our decisions. Well, I made a decision about God, so I must be saved. Nothing. Not our heritage, our race, our wealth, our nationality, or even our works can save us. So what saves us? Well, you would have noticed in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How does the salvation come? To everyone who believes. How can we be saved? By believing in Jesus Christ. At the end of those three chapters where Paul makes everyone feel terrible, you all suck, he says this in chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that means will be declared right in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So even if you try and know God's law and obey it perfectly, you'll just know your sin better and actually make everything worse. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that's mean you're brought about apart from obeying the law, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, how are we saved? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's so much in there, we can't unpack it all. But the main point that Paul is trying to get at here is that salvation for our souls and for our friends' souls and our neighbor's souls and maybe your soul, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can only be made possible through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. This is the, the powerful gospel. The good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. The good news that he died on a cross, bearing the sin and shame of the world. And the good news that God accepted his sacrifice. When someone hears this good news and puts their faith in Jesus, as we know, the gospel, the power of God, saves them. How does faith save us? Why faith? How does does it work? Faith saves us not because of our act of faith, but because of who we put our faith in. Faith is the ultimate eject button on your own self. It's like, I got nothing left, boom, and you're out in the free air, and you're like, I I, I discard all my works and everything, eject, I'm going to God. Faith says, I trust only in you. You're my only hope. It rests completely on Jesus Christ. And it only worked because of who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ did. That's why faith saves, because of Jesus. 
because Jesus, as the verse says, was the redemption on the cross. That means he bought us back. If you're going back to the bankruptcy illustration, each one of us is bankrupt. We've got all this debt. It's all there. God can see it. Even if we try and hide it from ourselves, God can see it. Stands over us. But in love, God sends his son to perfectly pay the debt. That's what that word propitiation means, to appease God, to pay back the debt that we ought to owe. And if you declare bankruptcy, you get added into Jesus' bank account and you get to tap his card when you get to the you know, register before God and all of his credit from his perfect life gets applied to your account and all of your debits from your life get transferred to his account and this great exchange takes place. But only... If we and our friends and family and neighbors put their faith in Jesus. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. So we need the bad news first. And we need to apprehend that for ourselves to rejoice again in the gospel and to feel the need to actually get off our butt, so to speak. I need to get off my butt and tell people there can be salvation if they put their faith in Christ. So why was Paul so passionate about the gospel? Why was he not ashamed when we're so often ashamed? Why was he so eager to go to Rome? If you look at verse 15, it says, um, in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. He wants to make a mammoth journey all the way from Jerusalem to Italy, right? You know, without an airplane, okay? He wants to do that because he wants to tell them the gospel again. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we've seen why we need saving. It's because we're sinners. We've got to admit it. We've seen how we are saved. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. But point number three, what does it mean to be saved? Point number three, what does it mean to be saved? You see, in Australia, if you declare bankruptcy... Although it gets you off your debt for a period of time, it actually stays with you your entire life. If you declare bankruptcy in Australia, your name gets put on a register, and any bank or any lending institution, I think even landlords and things like that, can look up your name on this register and see that at one time you were bankrupt. It affects your credit rating. It affects whether you can actually travel overseas. Um, over, and it has all these massive implications. So declaring bankruptcy in Australia doesn't free you of all your problems. And sometimes people treat Christianity a little bit like that. They think that, well, you know, it clears my debt. It's kind of halfway salvation. But the rest of my life, I've got to make it up to God. I've got to, you know, continue to be a good little boy or girl so that God will accept me at the end day. Or if I've got to really try my hardest, you know, and get it all right and feel really good about God and never have any doubts or any problems, and then I'll be saved by God. The reality is, is that we don't have a halfway salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Jesus' salvation goes all the way. And this is the power of God, and this is the amazing blessing that we have to offer to people. 
That they don't just have to get their past sins dealt with and then they've got to figure it out the rest of the way. Their entire life from past, present, future is covered in Jesus Christ. See, verse 17 says this, For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Part of what this sentence means is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become righteous. The righteousness of God is applied to you and rather than being afraid of a holy God, you now want to be in his presence. You become righteous and he's the one that makes it happen. But we're not just made righteous, we live in righteousness. We live by faith. And so those who become Christians, we don't just kind of tuck that little ticket in our back pocket, saved, and move on. We live by faith and continue to live righteously. And so there's all these blessings of salvation, and I'm running out of time, so I can't list them all now, but I'll just tell you them in quick part. All these things that we receive, that we have to offer people when we preach the gospel, if someone repents and someone believes and someone becomes a Christian, this is what they receive. They receive justification. They are made right before God. They receive regeneration. They're unified with Christ and their old self dies and they become a new person. New year, new you. Well, faith in Christ, new you forever. We receive sanctification. Romans 6.12 says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, but present your members to God for righteousness. We actually have the power to live righteously and to be changed. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are adopted. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is how powerful the gospel is. You, put your, you, you preach the message of the gospel to someone, and by God's grace, they feel convicted of the Holy Spirit. They actually put their faith in Jesus, and boom, in that moment, they're adopted into the kingdom of heaven. They're a son and daughter of God forever, forever, no turning back. And that's one of the last you know, blessings that we receive of the gospel, perseverance and future glory. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What that means is this. This is how powerful the gospel is. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ receives all those blessings and will be kept by God to the end and one day will be glorified in all eternity with the glory of the Father. This is what we have to offer people and it feels so weird because it feels like a solar-powered toothbrush. We're like, hey, do you want this solar-powered toothbrush? But inside we're like, but it's not a solar-powered toothbrush, it's a Ferrari. But trying to make that gap and trying to actually communicate that to people is so hard which is why we don't do this on our own strength and by our own merit. 
This is why we completely need the power of the Holy Spirit and we completely need to replay the gospel, the tape of the gospel every day so that it doesn't feel like a toothbrush we're trying to sell. We're like, actually, we got a Ferrari. Let me tell you all about it. Look at the features. Look, regeneration and sanctification and use, you know, don't use those words. Okay, so in order to be on mission, in order to be a church who's passionate about proclaiming the gospel, we need to know the power of the gospel. Isn't it powerful? <laughs> Words. You speak to someone and you say, you're a sinner. And there's a holy God. You'll be judged before him. But he sent his son to die in your place for your sins. If you put your trust in Jesus rather than yourself, you will be saved. You say those words and they feel like nothing. But imagine if someone believes it. Boom. All of that happens in an instant. In order to be on mission as a church, we need to know the power of the gospel. We need to wake up and put the tape in every morning and refresh ourselves that all these things are not just true for them, they're true for us too. We need to play the tape with each other and remind each other, this is reality. Look at the amazing news of the gospel. And then we need to play the tape to others and help them see this is reality. This is what you're missing out on. And I wish you could wake up and see it. And we do it together. We're not alone in this. We need one another to spur each other on. Otherwise, we're just going to completely fail. Like me, I haven't shared the gospel with anyone this week. You know, I wish I had, but I haven't. And so you need to get up in me and be like, Oi, Riley, what are you doing? Let's go. Come on. Are you ashamed of the gospel or what? And we need each other to spur each other on because there's a lost world out there. And unless we know the power of the gospel, we're never going to share it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you have saved us, and that we have experienced this power, that you have transformed us from sinners, rebels, to sons and daughters. As sons and daughters, would you fill us with your spirit, fill us with love and pity for our neighbors, Fill us with a desire to actually make the sacrificial steps to seek the lost. And God, I pray and ask that you would move powerfully through our little church, that people would hear these strange and offensive words and miraculously fall on their knees and declare bankruptcy. And Lord, for anyone here who is sensing that maybe they're not actually saved yet, that they haven't actually declared spiritual bankruptcy before you, would you lead them even now to put their faith in you alone and not in themselves? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.